This morning I began a series of sermons four weeks during the month of June on leadership. Followers become leaders. The idea is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you're to be a leader of others. And so we're going to try to cultivate leadership in the body of Christ this month. Let me show you where we're going. Let's look ahead. Some people like to know where you're going. So next week, we're going to talk about church leaders, and we're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and the qualifications for church leaders. We're going to be electing deacons this month in our church, important leaders. We need new deacons. We need you to nominate new deacons to serve. We're going to be looking at the qualifications next week, and so we hope to cultivate some leaders. We're going to be looking at other church leaders, the qualifications for pastors. God might call you or your children to be pastors. We need some leaders in other areas of our church. Beginning of the new church year, August the uh, 6th, we're going to add a third worship service. And so we need about a hundred of you in this worship service who will flip and you'll come to a connection group at this time at 8.30 and you'll help us start. You'll be missionaries. You'll lead out and lead to start a new worship service at 9.30. Now, to do that, we need a complete Sunday school connection groups at 8.30. We ask whole groups to move. We only had three that would move, representing about 27 people. We need So now what we're going to do is start new groups. So we're going to be looking for new teachers at an 8.30 connection group. And we're going to ask some of you to leave where you are and leave your comfort. And for the sake of Christ and His kingdom... To lead out. And so we're going to be talking about church leaders next week. Then on Father's Day, the following week, we're going to be talking about family leaders. And we're going to challenge husbands, wives, dads, moms. Even talk about how teenagers and children can exercise influence in their family. What does God want us to do in our family that we ought to be leaders? We're going to be looking at that from Proverbs 4 on June the 18th. And then June 25th, we're going to talk about investing in other generations. A concern that you would have for a generation besides your own generation and leadership across generations from Titus chapter 2. So that's where we're going. But today, today is the foundation of all that. And here's the truth. This month, we're going to be trying to cultivate leaders. Today, what I want to share is if you are a follower of Jesus, you already are a leader by virtue of your position in Christ and your calling. We're going to see that from 1 Peter Chapter 2, verse 9, here's our verse today. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You already are those things. We're going to look at them one by one that you're already a leader. First, though, before we look at this verse, it's our text for today, let's back up and get the context in the passage before and see that, first of all, this is about followers of Jesus. So let's look back at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and enduring Word of God. So the context, this verse is about people who have been born again. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so if you're not a Christian today, you could be born again by the Word of God. If you believe the message that I'm going to share with you in a moment about how to do that, then you'll put your faith in Jesus Christ, let Him be the foundation stone of your life, and you have a whole new start. You're born again, the Bible calls it. So this is for everyone who's born again. So when you're born again, if you're a Christian now, here's what it says to you next. 
1 Peter 2, 2, still getting the context, like newborn babies, okay, you've been born again, right? So you're spiritually a newborn babe. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. So when you're saved, when you're born again, now you're supposed to grow spiritually. And the way you grow is by craving the Bible and the Christian fellowship, that spiritual milk that's going to help you to grow, okay? As you're growing, though, you're already a leader. Now, look at verse, um, verse 5. No, excuse me, verse 4. As you come to him, so as you're coming to him in the same process simultaneous with growth, we're going to talk about some positions of leadership next few weeks that are after you've grown a while. You can't be a church leader if you're a new person, whatever, so forth. But right now we're talking about, for those of you, no matter who you are, if you're a follower of Jesus, as you come to him, the living stone. So the image of Jesus here is he's a living stone rejected by humans. So a lot of people reject him, right? But chosen by God, God chose him and precious to him, you also, as you come to him, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Here's your leadership role. We're going to talk about your holy priesthood. Offering spiritual sacrifices. So you don't have to offer, like the Old Testament, animal sacrifices. That's done once and for all in the blood of Jesus. But now we offer spiritual sacrifices like we've done in praise today in the service that we give. Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, and now he's quoting from the Old Testament about Jesus. For see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen, get these words because they're, they're the key words in verse 9. We've had spiritual priesthood. Now a chosen and precious cornerstone and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. You want to never be put to shame? Trust in Jesus. He is God's cornerstone for your life and for our world. And if you trust in him, you'll never be put to shame. Verse 7, now to you who believe, here's how you become a Christian, to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. So Jesus is going to be for every person, either the foundation stone of your life or a stone you stumble over because you reject him. So now we come to our key verse. But you're not a person who stumbles. Here's what you are. Because you've been born again and you're growing by craving the word, you're these four things. Now, these four descriptions of every believer that we're going to look at in verse 9 come from the Old Testament. They were first spoken about the nation of Israel. So let's get that background Let's look, first of all, at uh, Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. And this is God right before he gave the Ten Commandments to Israel. Key time at Mount Sinai. And here's what God says to them. Exodus 19, 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. And a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites, God said to Moses. Then let's look at just in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, in the passage where Deuteronomy repeats the Ten Commandments, just a chapter before. Here we read Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. You hear those phrases there? 
Okay, so all four of these phrases, chosen people, royal priesthood, holy nation, God's own possession, were spoken of Israel. And all of these speak of two things. They speak of privilege and responsibility. So God was saying to Israel, you got a big privilege. You're my chosen people, special possession, holy. You're different from all the other nations. What a privilege. He brought them into a relationship with him, the privilege of a relationship. But it was also a responsibility for Israel. You're a royal priesthood. You've got a responsibility to the nations. So get those two words, privilege and responsibility, because what we're going to see is of Israel, they got the privilege part and sort of forgot the responsibility. And it made them superior. I think of Captain Underpants, but I shouldn't say that. But it made them, you know, <laughs> that superior thing and not, uh, and not humble. They thought, we're chosen, we're special, we belong to God. Look at us. And they looked down on Gentiles and they forgot that, that these roles entailed responsibility of representing God. Now, the same thing can be true of us when they're used of us. All right, so let's look at, at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, and see the leadership role that you have as the people of God. And the first one says, you are a chosen people. Just as God chose Israel, he's chosen us for eternal life. Now, God chose Abraham, you remember, to be the foundation of Israel, and all the nation would be through him. And God said to Abraham, I will bless you, that's the privilege, and you will be a blessing to the nations. That's the responsibility. Well, the Israelites remembered the privilege and sort of forgot the responsibility uh, that they're to bless others. A chosen people blesses others. That's responsibility. That's what, where our role as leaders are. And it's easy for us to get centered on our relationship that is the privilege and forget that we have been blessed so that we may bless others. The second phrase is, oh, you are a royal priesthood. Now, a priest is a mediator between God and people, right? And so, God wanted the whole nation of Israel to have a priestly role. They were special. They were chosen by him, and they're going to represent others. But they emphasize the privilege rather than the responsibility. Now, for us as Christians, you see, this is a phrase that Baptists have really emphasized. If, you don't, if you're not, a lot of you are not from a Baptist church, in our history, the priesthood of believers is a big phrase in Baptist doctrine. It was, it was uh, re-emphasized, reintroduced by Martin Luther in the Reformation, but Baptists took it even further as a distinctive doctrine of Baptists. That is, in our relationship, first of all, with God in the privilege, we believe you don't have to have a priest to confess your sins to or to pray, help you to pray. You don't need a go-between between you and God. We believe in and emphasize a direct access and relationship to God because you are a priesthood of believers. You get it? So uh, you, that's the privilege of this role, right? 
You can talk to God yourself anytime. You don't have to go through a mediator. You have that direct access in prayer and in confession of sins to God. That's the privilege. But Baptists, just like Israel, have sometimes emphasized the privilege and not the responsibility. A priest is a mediator between God and other people, and so it's a privilege that we're directly connected to God. It's a responsibility that you are a priest in your workplace. You, you represent God. A royal priesthood represents God. That is the responsibility in your classroom in your school, you're, God put you there as a leader. You're a chosen person, and you are a royal, kingly, a kingdom of priests. You're all a kingdom of priests to represent God. Do you see that role? I want you to be aware of that role and embrace that role. that I, God put me, he chose me, and he put me here to represent him. And let us not just emphasize the privilege, but the responsibility. This week we'll have uh, folks out at Bonnaroo uh, at a Jesus tent, 150 so volunteers representing our church and others and, and trying to be that kind of priesthood. And there's a church right in the middle of the camping area of Bonnaroo. And every year at Bonnaroo, they rent chain link fence panels and put them all around their property and and chain that up and they don't have church next Sunday and they close down and they protect their property and we're paying to rent a place to put our tent and and I used to think over these past years man this church what are they doing they're not being the priesthood they're, they're supposed to be a royal priesthood representing God and God gave them a spot right in the middle of 40 to 80,000 people and they're not doing that so I used to sort of be judgmental on them and then I got to thinking, well, God put you in a neighborhood right in the middle of a bunch of people. Are you doing anything in your neighborhood? And God put you in a classroom, and God put you wherever you work. So then I wouldn't hardly as judgmental on them because I wonder, do I do any better to, to represent God to the people? He's put me in the middle of a bunch of people, right? And you in the middle of a bunch of people. And let us be a priest holding on to God in direct access and reaching out to other people because you are a royal priesthood. And the third phrase is, you are a holy nation. Now God said to Israel, for in order for you to be this priesthood, you're going to have to be different. And so he gave them the Ten Commandments, and then he gave them some strange laws about food laws and all this stuff. But what it did, it set them apart from the people around them and made them different so that they could represent him. And now, the new Israel, the church, you're a holy nation. So that means... Privilege-wise, you're, you're closer to God. Responsibility-wise, it means a holy nation lives differently. We're going to have to be holy. God wanted Israel to be holy because, as we've just sung, God is holy. And so if we're going to be leaders, the great need for leadership is that we be holy like God is holy. I read a, a writer of leadership books 
wrote that 75 years ago, leadership books emphasized the need for character and integrity and righteousness in order to be a leader. But now, 75 years later, he said in his survey of leadership books, most books emphasize for leaders strategy and technique to be a leader. And so we've lost, we're losing some of that character as an essential part of leadership. And character is essential to leadership, and we got to be a holy nation. And as our nation drifts further and for, further from biblical moral standards, it becomes more and more obvious that we are a holy nation. Gallup poll just came out this month that said uh, um, of 19 moral indicators, there is uh, less disapproval of what's wrong now than there has been in the past 15 years. For example, in 2001, 45% of Americans, or excuse me, 53% of Americans said it was morally acceptable to, for two people to have sex outside of marriage. 53% said it was morally acceptable, but this year, 2017, 69% of the people in America say it's morally acceptable uh, for two people to have sex outside of marriage. So you see, we're the minority, aren't we? And it's changing about one percentage point every year, according to this over the past, if it continues in 15 years, that'll be up into the 80s or 90%. So uh, our, if we're going to be a holy nation, there's more and more pressure for us to conform and be like everybody else. But the leadership role that God has given us is you are a holy nation. And by living differently, you will be a leader in our culture as long as we maintain the distinctiveness that corresponds to God's Word. The fourth phrase is, you are God's special possession. Let me ask you real quickly, what are your special possessions? If your house caught on fire, what would you want to get out first other than things of monetary value? It's probably you're thinking of some photos or some mementos or some things that are personal and precious to you. Those are your special possessions. Well, it says that you are God's special possession. That ought to make you feel good, right? That's the privilege. That ought to also realize that you have a responsibility. You know, in museums, they have a lot of ordinary items that are only in a museum because of who they belong to. Did you ever think about that? You can go to the Country Music Hall of Fame and perhaps see Hank Williams' cowboy hat and guitar. And you know what? It's just a cowboy hat and a guitar. I'm looking at a cowboy hat here. But you're looking at it because of the person to whom it belonged. You can go to the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and see a baseball that Sandy Koufax threw. And you look at it and say, that's a baseball, yep. It's a, there's nothing different. It's ordinary except for the fact that Sandy Koufax threw it in a perfect game. And so ordinary objects become special because of who possesses them. You are God's special possession. You're museum quality. Now what you're to do is remind pe people of your owner. Spe God's special possession reminds people of of its owner. Reflect your owner. That's the responsibility. Because you're ordinary, but you are special because you belong to the God of the universe and His Son, Jesus Christ. This week, some of you are going to be teaching 
Vacation Bible School, would you be aware of God calls me as a chosen people to bless others. Is there any way I can bring blessing? Any way I can bring blessing to the people around me? This week as you work at the Jesus tent, would you remember I'm a royal priesthood. Part of that royal priesthood. God has put me here that I'm linked with him and to reach out to others. As you live your life, will you remember I'm a holy, we are part of a holy nation and if I lose that holiness, I'm not effective as a leader in God's kingdom. And I, we are part of God's special possession. Let's remind others of him. I want to tell you a story. It was in Reader's Digest in 1985. It was written by a guy named Arthur Fine. And he was walking down the street in New York City one day, and he found a wallet on the sidewalk, picked it up, had $3 bills in it, and it had a love letter in it. Old love letter, crumpled and worn. And as he looked at it to try to find an owner, the love letter was dated 60 years previously. And it was written by a woman named Hannah, and it started out, Dear Michael. And it told of ending a relationship as young sweethearts because of parental disapproval. And she signed it, Michael, I will love you always, Hannah. Arthur Fine was touched by the letter, and he thought, maybe I could find who this belonged to. And he had the, the address from Hannah, and, and so he traced it back, sought to find Hannah. And through a series of investigations in one place and another over 60 years, found that Hannah was now in an assisted living facility in New York City, 65 years old, living there, and he went to see her. And the director of the, the facility met him and told him why and took, her up to the third, took him up to the third floor, and there she was sitting watching television. And he brought out the letter and said to her, is this your letter? Is, did you write this? And she said, she read it and said, yes, I did. said, he was the love of my life. My parents would not approve because he was older. I was 16. He was older. We broke up, and I've never married, and uh, I think of him still. And his name was Michael Goldstein. He went out of the nursing home, and the security guard at the door said, how, how did it go? And he said, well, I found her, but I did, all I really learned was his name, at least. He was Michael Goldstein. And he said, Michael Goldstein? There's a Michael Goldstein lives on the eighth floor of this facility. And so they went up the elevator to the eighth floor, the security guard and the and Arthur Fine, and there on the eighth floor, he met a man and said, are you Michael Goldstein? He said, yes. And he said, Do you, did you lose your wallet? And he said, yes, I was out walking a few days ago, and I lost my wallet. And he said, I have it, and I, is this your letter? And he read it, and he said, yes. He said, uh, it broke my heart when uh, Hannah broke up with me, and uh, tell them we're busy right now, and we'll get back to them, and <laughs> In just a minute there. Um, and he said, I never married. Uh, I never found anybody to measure up to Hannah. And he said, uh, my, and Arthur Fine said, I've got some news for you. I know where Hannah is. And he said, do you have her phone number? I'd love to call her. It's <laughs> her on the phone right there. <laughs> and Arthur Fine said, come with me, and they went back down to the third floor, and Michael and Hannah 
were reunited. And three weeks later, Arthur Fine got a wedding invitation, inviting him to the wedding of Michael and Hannah. And he ended that article in Reader's Digest by saying, how good is the work of God. That's a picture of 1 Peter 2.9. We're go-betweens. We've been brought into a privilege. You're close to God. He has chosen you to be close to Him. You didn't deserve it, but He has chosen you. And you have direct access to Him. And you're His special possession. But with that comes a leadership responsibility to reach out in the other direction, to do what Arthur Fine says. Because God has written a love letter. And there are people very nearby who, doesn't, who do not know that there is someone right near them who loves them and wants a relationship. And you know where they are. You've been to the eighth floor. You've been to the third floor. You know where they are. And it's our great privilege and responsibility to be a chosen priesthood, a royal nation, a holy nation, God's special possession. Would you stand together with me? Today, as we sing, I hope that you will just reclaim your role. And today, if you have not been born again by the Word of God, you can have a new start in your life, and you can be a follower of God, and you know what? You'll be His special possession. You'll be His chosen people. What a privilege. Would you come to Him? Walk down to one of these aisles if you want to join this church or accept Christ as Savior. I want somebody to pray for you. Let's, let's sing together.